The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scriptures reading comes from Psalm 71. We'll begin at verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as important to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth, you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. Until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with a harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with a lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, So, uh, several indicators of a well-rooted faith are demonstrated to us in this psalm. Uh, One of those indicators of a well-rooted faith is what you could call durability, uh, or what uh, the Protestant reformers called perseverance of the saints, or preservation uh, over the long haul of faithfulness, uh, even while navigating many dangerous toils and snares, as we'll sing about at the end of the service today. Uh, In verse 18, you may have noticed that uh, the psalmist, David, is talking about his own old age and gray hairs at this point, and he is one of the many portraits in Scripture of one who stays with God all the way to the end. Uh, Another such person was uh, Anglican minister Charles Simeon. In 1836, he retired from the pastoral ministry uh, 
after 54 years uh, as an ordained pastor. And one of his friends discovered that even after he retired, Simeon continued, as he had done for decades, to rise out of bed at 4 o'clock every morning uh, and to immerse himself in the Scriptures and nourish uh, his soul uh, with the Scriptures and then uh, spend unhurried time uh, responding back to whatever he's receiving from God uh, with prayer, sometimes for hours upon end. And the the friend said, uh, Mr. Simeon, don't you think, now that you're retired and uh, into your 80s, that you might take things a little bit more easily uh, when it comes to your faith? And the 80-ish-year-old man replied, what? Shall I not now run with all my might when the winning post is in sight? That's a sign of durability. When somebody sees their own death as a winning post. That's something else. King David is one of those people. Verse 9, again, he's in his old age, and he says his strength is spent, and yet he's still got this wonder of a child. After a life filled with suffering, uh, filled with curveballs, filled with with shattered dreams, uh, filled with betrayals and hurts and all the rest, uh, he's still showing up, still trusting, obeying, and leaning in with his God. So that's the first sign or or the first indicator of of a well-rooted faith. The second, in addition to durability, is refusal to numb yourself when the hard stuff of life comes your way. As his body gives way uh, from old age, uh, his soul becomes more and more animated as time goes by. You know, look at all of these psalms of lament and all the other prayers that he prays, and, 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 and we'll find very quickly the older he gets, the more poetic he becomes, the less cynical he becomes, uh, and uh, the more alive and, and, and deep uh, he becomes as a feeler. He's a feeling Man, don't ever buy the lie, don't ever buy the lie that people can be too emotional. That's an American sentiment, but it's not a biblical one, uh, and it's not a sentiment that comes from God. God never tells us not to get so emotional, not to be so emotional. Obviously, we need to steward our emotions in health, uh, but emotions are part of what it means to be alive. God has given us emotions just like he's given us a heartbeat, just like he's given us a brain, feet, hands, ears, five senses, and all the rest. Our emotions are part of what God has put in us, and they're all over the Psalms. Uh, And so one takeaway from especially the Psalms of lament, right, because those are the emotions, the distressed emotions that we really prefer that other people shove down and not bring to the table with us, and they're also the emotions that we're ashamed to bring to the table for fear of people wanting to retreat from us. But what the Scriptures demonstrate again and again and again is that the deeper the faith, the more you will feel, the more you will emote, not the less. Jesus wept. Psalms of Lament, they teach us about three things. Number one, the helplessness of our lives. Number two, how God shows up for us in that helplessness. 
And finally, the sure and certain future of everything. So let's talk about our own helplessness first. Now, David writes from the position of a leader, and it's always been the case every century, every part of the world, where very, very few people want to hear about the unique pain and sorrow that leaders experience and the loneliness that goes with it. And it goes like this. Oh, poor little leader, start the violins. Oh, poor little leader at the top of your perch, telling everybody what to do, governing things, orchestrating things with your big fat salary, etc. Poor little leader. Not recognizing that that cliche, it's lonely at the top, is not just a cliche. It's real. And this, this congregation is filled with leaders, and my office has been filled with them over the course of years. How do I not be so lonely? It's a thing. Recognize here that these psalms of lament, they're not coming from somebody who has no control over anything. They're coming from a king. It gives validation to that song by Bob Dylan, Everything is Broken, including people, uh, or REM, uh, you know, Michael Stipe and crew, everybody hurts. It's a fact of life. How did this play out with David? It first played out with the memory of his family of origin that never left him. And if you've ever been in a counselor's office, you know this. This is one of the first questions you, you get asked. Tell me about your mother. Tell me about your father. Tell me about your life growing up. Because Because those formative years are years that shape our reaction and response to everything for the rest of our lives. And the reason why we have counselors is to help us to be healthy with the stewarding of disappointment and even devastation in our younger years. This is actually a common narrative for leaders and achievers. And you'll see this as you read the biographies. Most leaders and achievers, you can trace their lives back to a broken home situation as they were growing up. This isn't the case across the board, but it's, it's a very significant theme. And to this, David laments, you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Why does he say this? Because he had no other trust. He was left out by his brothers. He was part of a family of ten, and and he was excluded by his own brothers. His own father called him a runt. The 27th Psalm, he, he, he laments how his own father and mother had forsaken him. Family of origin. The second thing that David had to contend with uh, was what you could call vindictive smear campaigns. In verses 1 and 4, he talks about how he's caught in the grasp of wicked, unjust, cruel men who are determined to put him to shame. He says, I've become a portent to many. A portent is a public spectacle, especially a public spectacle of humiliation. People are trying to humiliate him with vindictive smear campaigns. Verses 13 and 24, he goes on, my accusers are intent on hurting me. And then the third wound and the third lament is how people are talking behind his back. Verse 10, my enemies speak concerning me. They consult together. Now, I want to be clear, in, in, in none of these psalms does David just put himself forth as a victim. 
You, you can almost always see at least a line or two, even when he's lamenting how hurt and betrayed he feels, he's always saying, but you, Lord, you know my sin. Lord, you know even my hidden faults. Forgive even the faults I'm not even aware of. You know all this. He's introspective. Uh, in other words, he, he honors that later teaching from Jesus, consider the log in your own eye before you try to remove a speck from somebody else's. The other thing about David is that he is, he is non-defensive when it comes to the general public. He takes everything to God, and that's where he takes it, and that's, for the most part, where he leaves it. I encourage you to look up a, a, a story about David uh, and, and how he is insulted and publicly humiliated and shamed by a man named Shimei. And David's friends said, you want us to kill him? You want us to finish him off? You want us to retaliate? And David says, no. Maybe there's a kernel of truth in there uh, from what Shimei is saying that, that I can learn from or that we can learn from. Maybe there's something in there that's from the Lord. Yeah, he's irritating. Yeah, this isn't the best method uh, for expressing your concerns, and yet maybe there's something in there that we can learn. David never goes public with his own defense, it seems. David never seems to retaliate, even when he's treated in this way, even when people are conspiring against him behind his back. You know, Dan Allender, in his, uh, his book called Leading with a Limp, says that a good leader will in time, disappoint everyone. Leadership requires a willingness not to be liked. In fact, even a willingness to be hated. Now, for David, that was, that was the case for him a lot of the time. And the one thing that brought him comfort was that he had one character witness in every situation, and that character witness was God. Just like the later son of David, Jesus Christ. David, as it says in 1 Peter 2 about Jesus, committed no sin in some situations. Well, let me just, let's just make this about Jesus because David was a sinner and we know this. But he was also referred to God as his character witness, as a man after my own heart. So even at his worst, even when he was the one bringing the junk to the table, David was quick to repent. David was quick to repair. David was quick to respond to God in every situation. But Jesus, who had no sin, here's what 1 Peter 2 said. And remember, Peter possibly knew Jesus Christ more closely and more intimately than anyone on earth except maybe his mother and except maybe the Apostle John. Peter knew Jesus. And Peter wrote this about him. Jesus committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When people hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. How did Jesus do this? I love what Nate Tasker said a minute ago. That these psalms, psalms like this, are private laments that become the public property of the people of God. What an amazing statement. What an amazing reality that these psalms are public property. And Jesus Christ, among all the Old Testament scriptures, the psalms 
were the scriptures, the private laments, were the, were the public property, property that he accessed and, and, and put in his own mouth to express his own grief as he did not defend himself, as he did not retaliate, but instead died for his enemies, as he sang the honest songs of God. So my favorite writer, her name is Patty Sauls, wrote, wrote this, yes, wrote this uh, for an on, online devotional that she contributes to regularly that I know a lot of you benefit from. She says this, God's people sung the Psalms aloud, and God makes space for us to unload our hearts to him honestly and share with others. Head up, eyes open. We don't have to silently clench our fists to move through our days. We're not on this ride alone. One of the things that the Psalms do is they help us to know that we are known. They help us to know that we are understood. I don't know if you all have seen the the campaign out there now. Uh, It's called He Gets Us. Uh, It's a really remarkable campaign, uh, you know, sent out into the English-speaking world about how Christ gets us in all of our hurts and sorrows and laments, etc. He does. And the Psalms are proof positive of that as they're all inspired prayers given to us by him. So, so a lot of you have heard me talk about Chip Dodd. Uh, he's a counselor. He's an author. I know some of you actually work with him as well, just as I do. Uh, and he, he wrote a book called The Voice of the Heart. And in that book, he, he essentially uh, says that there are eight core human emotions, which are gladness, fear, guilt, shame, anger, loneliness, hurt, and sadness. The Psalms are saturated with all of these emotions. Uh, The Psalms give us vocabulary with which to express all of these emotions with the full range of human experience and the full range of human joy and human pain. The Psalms are given to us as once private property that become public property for the people of God. Did you notice when I listed those eight core emotions that seven out of the eight were distressed emotions? Only one of them, gladness, was was a happy feeling, positive emotions. Seven of the eight. What does this tell us about God? That he understands all of the different ways that people experience pain and he's giving us an outlet, a release valve for each and every unique kind of struggle and lament. Are you a person who is prone to feel out loud, especially with God? Your prayers aren't polite. They're not reverent in that they're afraid to feel and afraid to be expressive, which is actually not reverent. It is actually disrespectful to God to just bring him proper prayers. If you are one who is prone to feel out loud, don't let anybody shut you down. Be healthy with those feelings. Do the work and get the help you need to make sure you're being healthy with them. But if you are one who feels out loud, it's not an indication that there's something wrong with you. It's an indication that there's something right with you. 
So let's head on to the next one. The next thing we see in this psalm is the God who shows up in our helplessness. So there's this famous book, bestseller, New York Times bestseller, written decades ago by a rabbi, and it's called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. You may have read it. Um, In many ways, it's a beautiful lament story. Uh, But the conclusions that the writer, a rabbi, makes are troubling conclusions. Because he says, you know, after losing his own son, which was what, what gave birth to the book, he said, I had to make a decision between the love of God and the power of God. Um, because if God were both loving and powerful, parents would not bury their children. They would never have to bury their children. And you know, we can all understand, I'm sure, that feeling, even if we've never had that horrific experience. And so he said, you know, I can't bear the thought of a God who is powerful but not loving, especially in circumstances like this. And so I have to go with a God who is loving but not powerful. Now, again, his position and his reasoning is understandable, but it's also hopeless. And it's also not true. In verse 20, David says these words, You, God, have made me see many troubles and calamities. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. You know, the late John Newton, who gave us the hymn Amazing Grace, said it this way, everything God sends is necessary. Nothing that God withholds can be necessary. Helplessness drives us to God. So I see Chris Miles out there. Hey, Chris. <laughs> Chris and I used to work at Redeemer together in New York. And one of the things that, that uh, our friend Tim Keller says about these things is this. The main thing we need in suffering is not answers, but companionship. Misery loves company, Keller says, because the loss of love is the greatest loss of all. Hear how David experiences company. In this case, not from people. Now, he has his people. He's got his three mighty men, and he's got his community around him. But but he is praying this prayer in isolation, but he's not isolated. He gets the companionship of God in the face of the three wounds that, that I talked about a minute ago. Listen to this. Addressing his family of origin wounds, verses 5 and 6, he says, You, O Lord, are my hope and my trust from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. I said at the beginning of the sermon, there, there are a few things more wonderful and beautiful than a young soul in old age. Not losing the wonder, not losing the joy, not losing the hope. A young soul in old age, not losing the curiosity. Equally wonderful is an old soul from a young age. Look, if you're, if you're under the age of 25, take to heart these words from the writer of Ecclesiastes. Remember the, your creator in the days that you were young. 
the earlier you start. It's just like catching cancer. The earlier you catch it, the earlier you catch yourself, you know, headed down a trajectory of cynicism, uh, of self-centeredness, uh, you know, of, of outrage, etc., the earlier you can catch it, the quicker it's going to heal and the more likely you're going to have long-term health and flourishing. Family of origin, God was his company. The smear campaigns, here's how he processed that with God. Verses 14 and following, he stays anchored in God's righteous acts, God's deeds of salvation and mighty deeds and wondrous deeds, God's might and power over all things, God's righteousness that reaches to the heavens, his redemption that brings joy even in the presence of hurt and injury. God is his companion. God is his source of love when he can't find companionship or love anywhere else. And when he's always having to watch his own back. And then how does he speak to the gossip and slander and and groups of people organizing together to conspire against him? Verse 13, may my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. Now, we talked about the imprecatory psalms last week, which, is, which, which are the psalms that, that, that put words in our mouths and give us vocabulary to, to pray against those who are injurious toward us. What's behind that? Well, if any of you has ever been in life or been in community with somebody who is addicted to a substance or who is being unfaithful to a spouse, the one thing that you have been determined to try to facilitate is for that person to hit bottom. Because when they hit bottom, that's where the hope rests. Remember the hem of Jesus' garment on the ground. When somebody hits bottom, that creates opportunity more than any other opportunity for a rebuilt and renewal and the pursuit of health and the pursuit of repentance and the pursuit of repair. That's what's going on there. But he takes it all to God. And here's one more thing, one more encouragement about the pressure that David is under. You know, the, uh, the famed psychiatrist and grief expert Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has this wonderful phrase where she says, beautiful people do not just happen. But in that context, she says this. You know, beautiful people are made beautiful. They don't just, just, they don't just get zapped with it. They're made beautiful. They're made approachable. They're made into life-giving kinds of people who show up well for other people. You know, 2 Corinthians 1 types of people who show up and comfort others with the comfort that they themselves have, have experienced and received from God. These are people who over the course of years have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss. And, and guess who's not exempted from that? Jesus Christ, who never committed a sin, who never had a nefarious motive even, learned obedience, learned faithfulness, learned truth, learned beauty through the things he suffered. God doesn't even exempt himself from the process. And we only feel abandoned because our feelings can be unreliable. We have to let who God is provide the interpretation of our circumstances and never think that it's our circumstances that, that, that can provide the interpretation of what God is like. We have to keep that in, in the right and faithful order. 
my own best qualities. I have some good ones. I have some not so good ones. But I can tell you this, that everything that I've ever lost, everything that I've ever suffered, has somewhere along the way shown up in my ministry. You know, most of you know me as a, primarily as a preacher and a writer. Here are a few th- other things that I am. I'm a husband. I'm a father to two girls. I'm a father-in-law. I'm a brother. I'm a friend. Uh, I'm a former tennis professional. I'm a music enthusiast who's not very good at music. I'm an abuse survivor. I'm a recovering control addict and perfectionist. I'm all of these things. You know, as Brennan Manning once said, you know, Aristotle says I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. As my wife says, has always been saying to our kids, when they want to shame and scold and, you know, dismiss, you know, somebody from their lives, my wife is constantly saying we're all mixed bag. Everybody's got beauty and everybody's got, you know, shattered realities. Everybody's complicated in that regard. The best person you know has got some ugly things that the people who live closest to them have to contend with and that they have to contend with. And the worst people you know actually have some vibrant, wonderful things about them that if you knew them better, you would celebrate and rejoice and probably have a less jaded perspective about them. But one of the things that you might not know about me is that, that my best pastoral work is done not from the pulpit and not from behind a computer screen. But when I get the privilege and am called upon for the privilege of showing up for somebody who feels destroyed by guilt, by shame, by hurt and betrayal, by fear, I'm really good. And this is, I'm trying not to humble brag here, but I'm really good at showing up for people who are wrecked by those kinds of things because I have been guilty. I have been ashamed. I have been crushed. I have been scared. And I've had people in my life, my life and the Scriptures themselves to show up for me so that I can know what it's like to have all of those things tended to the God that David prays to. Romans 5, we read it earlier. We rejoice in our suffering. What on earth? We rejoice in things that lead us to lament. What on earth? Because it's those things, more than anything, that nourish and cultivate and curate things like perseverance, durability, character, and hope. And hope does not disappoint. There's no bypass around lament in order to get to glory. There's no bypass around and away from the seven distressed emotions in order to get to the one good one, the one happy one, without medicating ourselves. That's that's the only way that we can try to bypass is to medicate. And that catches up with us and then creates and amplifies the seven distressed emotions eventually. Lastly, the sure future of everything. Remember, David here is old. His own own words, my strength is spent, and yet there's an emotional buoyancy about him. Where he says, you have given the command, Lord, to save me. I've still got to 
a bright future to look ahead to. I've still got my best days to look forward to. I mean, read these words here. You will, therefore I will. You have given the command to save me. Verse 21, you will increase my greatness. This is a dying king about to be retired from his, from his position of power and influence. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I mean, it brings to mind those words of Isaiah about David and you know, talking about the later son of David who will reign on David's throne and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. It all ties together, doesn't it? I will also praise you, he says in verse 22. You know, one of the ways that God has ministered to me most at Christ's Pres, and I haven't been shy about this, is the way that you die. The way that our people die. Our dying people, our suffering people, sing, it is well with my soul, and blessed be the name of the Lord louder than anybody else. They don't have that Presbyterian restraint, you know, holding their hands back. They just do this, and they don't care what anybody else thinks. From a place of suffering and grief and sorrow and loss. I mean, speaking of Tim Keller, he's dying of cancer right now. His pastoral ministry is over, and he says he's happier than he's ever been. How does that happen? How does that happen? The sure future of everything is how it happens. I could tell you about Wendy. Three days before her death, I was sitting on her back porch with her and her husband, planning her funeral together with her. And I said, Wendy, do you have any thoughts, anything you want me to share at your funeral? And her answer was, tell them that blueberries don't work. She had cancer. And had, you know, surfed the internet. How do, you, how do you stop cancer? Well, eat blueberries and it'll solve everything. Tell them blueberries don't work. I mean, what, what fuels this kind of whimsical defiance of death? Where, where there, there, there's just, there's no intimidation, <laughs> discernible intimidation, no discernible fear. And that's not at all to say that fear is not an appropriate emotion to feel in the face of death, but something came home to her in such a unique and beautiful way. I could tell you about Susan planning her funeral a few days before her death at her bedside because she couldn't get up anymore. Her body was so frail and weak, also from cancer. And as, you know, she... she, pretty much micromanaged the whole service. She's like, I want this person to speak two and a half minutes. I want this song right here, but only verses one, two, and five. You know, I want this person to speak six minutes, but no more. And make sure you tell them no more because I want people to be able to get out in an hour and 10 minutes, like just micromanaging the whole thing. And I'm like, I'm at your service. I serve at the will of Susan. But I said at the end of that meeting, I said, how are you feeling? And her answer was, I've never had more joy. Because I'm going to see Jesus soon. Aren't you jealous? And then there's John. Todd Teller and I went over to visit John along with David Filson on a number of occasions. He was in a wheelchair. His body was was wasting away. He'd been an elder of our church. His body was wasting away from the disease that, that eventually took his life. And he was homebound for the last several years of his life. Um... 
And, you know, every time we'd go over, we'd ask, how are you doing? And his answer would be, oh, I'm happy. And eventually I said, can you please tell me why you keep saying that? And he said, well, because I have every reason to be. I've been a Bible reader all my life, and I know exactly how this ends. You know, we pastors at Graveside, we get to tell people that bodies are not being buried here. They're being planted. They're becoming seeds in the ground that will emerge as oaks of righteousness, to use Isaiah's language, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor where no eye has seen, no ear has heard what the Lord has in store for those who have not been buried but planted, resurrection ground. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, which means we will too. World without end. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the promise, the wonderful promise that all sad things will come untrue in and because of and through Jesus Christ, who died, was risen, and will come again. Lord, for any man and woman who is restraining the very things that you invite these emotions of distress, these emotions of of lament, to bring them to you and to have them tended to by the great physician. Father, would you you meet those people now right where they are and, and even as we approach the table together, would we, as you intend for us, to see the bread and to see the cup as nourishment to help us be, be and become durable for the many dangers, toils, and snares that you're calling us to enter into in this current life which happens to be lived in a place that is both beautiful and tragic. Lord, help us along the way, even as we anticipate that living hope and all things becoming new as you promise. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.